0: No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. (laughs) Well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, you tell it is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story. Giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. What happens when you ask two writers to get up and trade their true-life tales on the spot? Well, if those two artists are Mike Dressel and Alexandra Gray, the result is magic. Mike Dressel is an integral part of the No You Tell It creative team. After participating in our second live show, we simply never let him leave. You can hear Alex's work featured in our very first podcast episode, and she's also participated in numerous alumni workshops and events over the past five years. When we asked No You Tell It alums to bring in their stories for an impromptu switch-em-up, this dynamic duo, who also happen to be birthday twins, came through in a big way. First up, we're going to have Alex Gray and Mike Dressel. Woo! To you. <laughs> you, you gotta
1: take it on yourself, I can't turn me <laughs> do <wanna> okay. <laughs> no, no. Come on, I'll read I can't. Do you read. Know, yeah, why don't I read first? read Alright, yeah, I'm, read. read. I'm reading it read. <laughs> right. off of of the so 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 phone. Yeah, so... <laughs> New York story number one, Doorways. Ooh, all right, well. At age 26, working for an HVAC company was far from the worst temp job I ever had, and after a few months there, I grew dangerously comfortable. The office was full of what you might call characters, from the two owners, brothers, who were prone to yelling adorable things like, I'm going to tear you a new asshole! To the handsome engineers who loitered around the reception desk and campaigned for me to be hired as a permanent employee. Despite the fact that I was a, it was a consistent gig and an entertaining one, I had no plans to stay. Showing up every morning by 8 a.m. was beginning to exhaust me, especially since I spent my free time rehearsing elaborate slapstick comedy shows, drinking too much, and commuting back and forth from Astoria. It hadn't been a particularly eventful day, but few were. The job consisted of answering phones, typing up on a typewriter, work orders, (laughs) negotiating an outdated DOS computer program, and deflecting the shockingly persistent visits from door-to-door salesmen. At times, the job was delightfully old-school, but mostly it was just dull and repetitive One day around mid-afternoon, arguably the dullest part of the day, when morning seemed like a foggy dream and 5 p.m. a distant tease, a woman's voice broke the silence in the hallway outside our office. I was used to the owner's yelling, but this was very different. She sounded hysterical, unhinged, desperate. Like something out of a movie, she was screaming, Help! Help! Somebody please help! I'd never heard anyone yell those words. It seemed theatrical Possible that they were ringing against the dingy walls in such a mundane context. Those of us within earshot looked up from our desks, then at each other. But at first, none of us moved. We were all afraid to open the door and see what was in the hallway. After a moment, it seemed ridiculous that no one had risen from their chair. The woman was still screaming. My supervisor and I moved towards the door. I let her open it, on the premise that she was my superior and, well, More of an adult? (laughs) Maybe this sort of thing happened all the time. We peered out into the hallway and at first didn't see anything. The door to the next office, a textile manufacturer, was open and we could hear a voice inside, still wailing. I took a few steps into the hallway and called out a tentative response. The woman emerged from the office. She was middle-aged, with long frosted hair and fussy layered clothing. clothing. She was sweating. Upon seeing her, seeing us, she shouted that there was a man having a heart attack in her office. Her stream of words still sounded like dialogue from a movie. She kept urging us to do something. She asked if either of us knew CPR. I did. I learned CPR as part of my previous job teaching performing arts in an after-school <laughs> program, which also included reading books and teaching crafts to under-threes in a playground. We were required to learn CPR, but none of us imagined we would need to use it. Or we did imagine it, but the reality of actually resuscitating a child was too frightening to contemplate. So we reassured ourselves we would never have to. Once my brief stint as a teacher was over, I thought I was safe. I hesitated a long moment in the hallway, long enough that it seemed wrong and selfish not to speak up, so I did. My voice sounded unsure in the dense silence that suddenly enveloped us. But to her, it must have sounded confident, because she ushered me into the office. I urged my feet to move, saying to myself that this woman needed me. I had to try to help. All the while, a warning from our CPR instructor played on a loop in my head, that if you don't know exactly what you were doing, you could hurt the person you were working on. Kill them, even. In the year or so since my training, I had forgotten nearly everything. I couldn't remember the number of compressions you were supposed to do in order to keep air moving in and out of the lungs, or the correct hand positions. I only knew that both were precise, and deviation from the prescribed method was worse than doing nothing at all. But I had already said I knew CPR. I had given her hope. I had stepped forward, and now there was no stepping back. I entered the room. The air was close, warm, likely due to the rolls of carpeting and fabric that lined the walls. The floor was also thickly carpeted, and in the center was a man, slight and blonde, Younger than the woman who called us in, lying unconscious with his head propped awkwardly on a tasseled pillow, I hesitated again. I hadn't expected him to be unconscious, but it seemed ridiculous, cruel, to just stand there, so I went to him. The only thing I could remember from my CPR training was A, B, C. That's airway, wrong. breathing, circulation. This is wrong, by the way. Circulation. <laughs> <laughs> is wrong. Uh-huh. wrong. So don't use this as, yeah. a, as a guide. You were supposed to check a person's vital signs in that order. I knelt and took the man's head onto my lap. He didn't open his eyes, and it occurred to me that I could be holding a dead body. I took the back of his neck into my right hand and, as gently as I could, raised his head so that his airway was straight instead of crumpled forward. I eased his jaw open with my left hand and looked inside his mouth. There was nothing blocking his airway. Honestly, I hadn't expected there to be. I was looking purely to ensure that I was checking his vitals in the correct order to buy time. I was more afraid of making a mistake than of letting this man die. The next step was to check his breathing, but I could already tell he wasn't. I moved my left hand from his jaw to feel his neck for a pulse. Nothing. I had no idea what to do next. I returned to the task of keeping his airway straight by slightly adjusting the position of my right hand behind his head, and suddenly something happened. The man's mouth dropped open, and he gasped. "'Inhaled with a deep shudder that I could feel against my knees. "'It startled me, and a jolt of fear ignited my whole body. "'I adjusted his head again, and again the gasp came. "'I had no idea what was happening or what to do. "'Should I begin chest compressions, give him mouth to mouth? "'I was paralyzed by the idea that I held this man's life literally in my hands. "'I looked up at the doorway where my supervisor was standing, just staring at us. "'The woman who had called us in was leaning against the wall in the corner of the room. "'She was whimpering or praying.' Even from my vantage point, I could see her hands were shaking. She had seen the man inhale and was waiting to see what I would do. Worst I didn't have to make a decision, because at that moment, two paramedics showed up. (laughs) It hadn't occurred to me to ask whether they had been called, and this was before I had a cell phone. I felt strange and guilty sitting there with the man's head on my lap, so I began a clumsy explanation of what had happened, of what I had tried to do, They settled through the doorway so casually that for a second I thought perhaps the situation wasn't as bad as it seemed. They were professionals. They would fix it. I stood up slowly, placing the man's head back on the pillow, and walked out of the room, wanting to say something reassuring to the woman whose name I didn't know, but who had witnessed one of the most frightening frightening moments of my life. For her, the moment wasn't over, and her eyes never left the man on the floor. He was now surrounded by the paramedics, who were still exhibiting what I hoped was professional cool and not indifference. My supervisor and I returned to our desks. She didn't seem to want to discuss what had just happened. We didn't even exchange the head shakes or long exhalations of breath that might have been expected given the circumstances. The building walls had seemed paper thin to the woman's screams, but I didn't hear another peep from the hallway, only the ding of the elevator as the man was taken down to the ambulance. I was quiet for the remainder of the day, and so was her office. At least that's how I remember it. The next day, I walked into the building even more reluctantly than usual. I was afraid to encounter the woman from next door in the hallway, afraid of not knowing what to say, afraid of her answer if I asked how the man was, the man I had vainly tried to help, but I wanted to know. As it turned out, despite the polite silence that existed between all the tenants of our floor, the almost stubborn reluctance to become involved in each other's business, there was news. The man had died the woman was his wife. The door to the textiles company's office was closed and there was silence behind it. Now there were plenty of headshakes, exhalations, but I couldn't bring myself to join in. I could still feel the back of the man's neck cradled in my hand, the fineness of his hair, and the rattle of those breaths against my legs. I wondered if they had been his last. My temp job at the company continued for another few months. I never saw the woman from the textile company again. The twin doors to our respective offices remain closed. Think about that day and try to conjure a precise picture of the woman in my head. It gets progressively blurrier with time. I wonder if she remembers anything about me. The stranger kneeling in her office, unwittingly sharing the moment when her husband died. toss of that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Thank God. That was good. Um, so the preamble for this is that I wrote, it's from a longer thing that I cut down so it may not actually fully make sense. I wrote it like five years ago for a reading a City College MFA program and the context is that I was playing bottom in a no budget tour of Midsummer Night's Dream throughout <laughs> Massachusetts. That's all the context we need. That's all that is all the context you need.
2: A uh, Very Midsummer Madness, by Mike Jussel. We killed in Fall River. Buffalo, a smash. <laughs> the trades might have read, if the trades covered non-union touring shows performed gratis in public parks by an erotic troupe of 20-something-year-old uh, 20-something actors. Nevertheless, we were a hit, which came as a surprise since... Britt had spent m- most of the morning briefing us on the dangers of Fall River. It's not as nice as it used to be, so keep a watch out for vagrants in the park and do not, under any circumstances, leave anything unintended. During one of my breaks, I sat at the top of a small incline, resting against a stocky oak tree, and watched the lovers play out their scene against the backdrop of the water. There was a hint of a breeze. It felt sublime. The show finished right as the sun set over the water, a brilliant ball of orange and red and hues dipping into a cerulean pool. We were performing at Winnicon Winneken. Winnekenny Castle in Haverhill, <laughs> which, with its gothic door and turrets, would have been a fitting Elsinore or Dunzimane, but alas, we were here to do a comedy, or at least our approximation of one. <laughs> During curtain call, Sal placed himself center stage. We had blocked the curtain call so that the lovers were the focus. Uh, he was becoming a monster. Offstage, he was sunny and adorable, but get him within five feet of a captive, audience, a captive audience, and he was a megalomaniac. I thought he'd even noticed him adopting some of my vocal inflections and figures of speech, but that idea was a little too single-white homosexual for me, so I pushed it from my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While packing up the costumes, we were approached by a young girl who introduced herself as Lauren. She looked to be about 10 years old, with mousy brown hair, and she clung to her parents while she shyly told us how much she enjoyed the play. Her father, a trim man in spectacles and khakis, spoke up. She read the play in school and was just taken with it. I can't tell you how happy we were when we found out you guys would be doing the show here. Lauren stepped on a program a flimsy Xerox and a, and a pen for our autographs. I signed my name and passed it on to another cast member. I was touched. This was why we were here, after all. This was the best part of the job, a job always on the verge of crumbling from ego and self-sabotage. Lauren posed for pictures with the cast, snapped by her father with a disposable camera. It was dark on our drive home from the castle show, and I was riding in the minivan next to Sal and Anne. We were exhausted, drifting in and out of consciousness, lulled towards sleep by the motion of the car. Anne was running her fingers through both Sal's and my hair, massaging her scalps. Sal rested his head gently on my shoulder. It was such a familiar affront, a tender indignity. I let it lay there the entire ride home. Each town, each hamlet we played, seemed marked by its own unique disconcerting challenge. On a football field in Everett, Massachusetts, we set up amid a group of guys scrimmaging. (laughs) Fifteen minutes into the show, a squad of cheerleaders ran laps past us, (laughs) chanting in unison. Sean... As Demetrius was on stage being pursued by Helena when he was almost smacked in the head by an errant football. <laughs> to his credit, he finished his line, picked up the ball, and sent it sailing back past the players. In Chelsea, which Britt described as the arsehole of the universe, a young boy was hit by a car barely a minute into our performance, <laughs> announced by a squeal of tire, tires, followed by a crash and the scraping of metal on metal. To the right of the park, just off the main street, a sporty Honda had come to a halt, and we could see a dirt bike lodged under the front tires. A boy of about ten was sprawled out on the curb. Cindy addressed the audience and told them, we'd hold the show. A shop owner came out to check on the kid, who seemed to have only scraped his knees a bit. His bike, on the other hand, was mangled. The front tire bent in half. The driver and his friends, a loutish band of teens, were gathered around the front of the car, praising the damage. The police arrived with a screeching of sirens, and we were delayed for close to an hour. The park in East Hampton, a botanical garden, was scary in a slumber camp massacre sort of way. The first time the clock tower went off, it was charming. <laughs> But when, in the middle of the show, it announced itself again, playing Beautiful Dreamer in a tinny drone reminiscent of an oversized music box, it wasn't nearly as quaint, uh, leaving Cindy and Clayton on stage, standing stuck still, waiting for the ditty to finish. Later, when I was committing mock suicide as Pyramus, the clock struck again, this time a series of cathedral gongs. I chose to acknowledge the interference. Thrusting my plastic blade between my chest and arm, I shouted, for whom the bell tolls, Pyramus, it tolls for thee. (laughs) I thought it a decent ad lib, but some jokes just don't land. (laughs) Anne was the first to notice the bees in Hollyoak. (laughs) They may have mistaken our bright patchwork motley for some, exotic species of flower they desired to pollinate. Brit had one land on the pages of her prop book and violently squashed it. I didn't understand. The Scottish play was supposed to be the cursed production, not funny little midsummer. At this rate, I reasoned, during the final performance, the earth would split, the rivers would run with blood, and the four horsemen would descend during our curtain call. At St. Clair, a retirement home for elderly nuns, there was a a sweet-looking plump sister with thinning hair. And when in character, I implored her to scratch the ass knoll. She tried to tickle me below the belt. I guess she wanted to find out if all of Bottoms' anatomy had fallen under Puck's spell. I, I grabbed her hand to stop her, and she struggled with me for a second, a nun with a kung fu grip, before surrendering. The other sisters hooted and hollered like they were in the audience of a male review. <laughs> After our, la- our show at The Landing, a retirement community for seniors, the cast was invited to stay and socialize, and they served sugary lemonade and bland cookies. The retirees were all so kind, though it didn't stop them from asking questions. That always irked me. <clears throat> Are you students? (laughs) No, ma'am, I'd say politely, this is my job. And then I remembered we weren't technically getting paid for this gig. Our closing night was held in the black box theater of the local drama studio in Springfield, and the space was packed. I wanted to feel excited or relieved or sad, but really I just felt numb. Lauren, our groupie, turned up. Before the show, she would come backstage with her father and presented us with copies of the photos that she had taken of each cast member. In mine, I am kneeling down beside her, dressed in my polka dot vest and striped shirt. Lauren had an off-kilter smile on her face, her little hands clasped in front of her. But what struck me was the expression on my face. I was genuinely smiling. I looked... Tan, healthy, radiant, happy. The antithesis of the image I had carried in my head since we had arrived. I had been so busy holding up the mirror up to nature, I'd forgotten to turn it on myself. Before they left, her father confessed to us she wants to be an actress, a bemused grin on his face. Whoops, we'd spread the disease, we'd made this gut-wrenching, oft-petty, sometimes ego-driven inconsistent art look like the most appealing thing in the world to a mousy ten-year-old girl. We may have been responsible for the next Meryl Streep. Most likely, we'd created another journeyman actor, one whose face would never, gra- would never grace a tabloid, whose feet would never touch a red carpet, but if she's lucky, maybe she'll pass on the same excitement one day. Better yet, her father should put his foot down and make her study medicine or law. She would be happier in the long term. We trod the boards as we we had done the whole summer. Nothing broke, the ceiling didn't collapse, and the four horsemen missed their cue. The performance was adequate. Not fantastic, not disappointing, just fine. The expectation... Is always that the last one will go out in a blaze of glory rather than just coast to the finish line. But we, we coasted. I suppose I also hoped for an epiphany, some transcendence. I hope that every time. Then two days later, the light bulb appears, and I think, oh, that's what the line is supposed to mean. (laughs) (laughs) I make a mental note. (laughs) I make a mental note to file it away for next time. Then. Just as soon, I remind myself that there isn't a next time for a one-time experience. The awkward post-show come-down hits so soon after and I realized again how ephemeral the enterprise is. We hadn't erected a tower, carved a statue, painted a canvas, we arrived with the vitality of life itself, word made flesh, and then nothing left behind save a darkened stage, an empty park, a barren field absence and memory, ours and theirs, the audience's, though there's no way of knowing, of quantifying what a person took away, if anything at all. A laugh, like an orgasm, dissipates. All that's left is afterglow. We sacrificed ourselves at the altar, and the most we could hope for was satisfaction, never true perfection another closing of another show I was the last one in the space having gone back to do a final sweep to make sure I hadn't forgotten anything the space was quiet separately the faintest smell of sweat and sawdust permeated I noticed no one had plugged in the ghost light so I rolled it over the center stage and ran the cord to the nearest outlet flipping on the switch the naked bulb hummed with electricity. The only illumination in a darkened house. I asked myself again, why do I do it? But if I ever found the answer, I'd probably stop. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I didn't want to stop. Hey!
0: That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Know You Tell It.
1: Visit us on the web at KnowYouTellIt.com.